Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 199, Back to School with Brie Rolfe. Today, we head back to school with special guest Brie Rolfe. Brie is a teacher in Austin, Texas, where she helps high school students discover literature and creative writing. She is also a poet whose collection, Who's Going to Love the Dying Girl, is out this fall. Actually, in just a couple of weeks, right? By the time people are listening to this. By the time you're listening to this, it's out. Go buy it. It's out. (laughs) Brie is also one of Literary Disco's nearest and dearest since she received her MFA at the Bennington Writers Seminar exactly one semester ahead of the rest of us. So (laughs) Brie was part of many of the late night drinking and debating sessions that became this very podcast. For today's discussion, Brie had us read three short stories that she assigns to her students at the beginning of the school year. Girl by Jamaica Kincaid, New Boy by Roddy Doyle, and Today is Costa Rica by Asaf Gavron. All three of which will be linked to in our show notes. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We are Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, our novelist and critic Todd Goldberg, essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel, and extra special this week, we welcome our good friend Bree Rolfe. Woo, Bree! Hi, Bree! Bree's here. Woo, Bree! Thank you. <laughs> it is super exciting to have Bree here, you guys. Because yeah. I have to tell you, and maybe you guys don't know this, uh, but Bree has been in my house a lot over the course of the pandemic. Bree was one of our pandemic buddies. So that awesome. we constantly were checking on each other to make sure we were alive. <laughs> alive and well. And it turns out Bree made some questionable decisions during the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> wow, strong well, living start. in Texas is one of them. But... Yeah, that's the, that's the biggest <laughs> that's just, one. No, <laughs> that's just the biggest risk factor. No, actually, how's it going, Bree? Like, how is Texas in terms of the, I mean, cause you're back in school now. Everybody, is everybody wearing masks? Like how does, how is that working? Ooh, good question. No. Um, Austin, Texas, everyone is wearing masks. Great. Um, the governor, Greg Abbott um, banned. Greg Abbott. Uh-huh. Yeah, he banned mask mandates for the state. Mm-hmm. So I don't smart. think so smart. Yes, so smart, so smart. and necessary. Yeah. Absolutely necessary. <laughs> yes. So Austin Independent School District, which is where I work, um, we ha- are mandating them. We have defied the governor's orders. Yes. And yes. I believe we are at risk of getting fined for doing that if they want to come after us. Oh, um, I'm hoping that they're not going to come after us. What, this, what would they do it, like to penalize uh, you? Stop allowing well, you to have abortions? Well, maybe they're going to deputize citizens like the abortion law oh, and everyone will get $10,000 for turning in their friends who are wearing masks. That's a great idea. <laughs> a, I, I oh, can't believe you haven't what is that, happening? No one suggested this. What is happening? Um, oh Ryder, you might have given him that idea just now. So thanks for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it maybe didn't occur to him, but I believe that they can, I don't know if they can withhold state funding or what have you. I honestly um haven't looked into like what are the consequences. I know that there can be fines or withholding of funds. Um, but it's Austin, Houston, San Antonio. Dallas, like all of the major ISDs are mandating masks. Um, mm. In AISD, we're mandating them. 
And if a kid doesn't want to wear them, then they can't come to school. So that's happening, but we still are in stage five. Um, we were down to single digit ICU beds a couple of weeks ago. I don't know uh, where it, I don't know where it's at today. We continue to have cases. So that's where we're at. We're masking, but we're back to full in-person school. And 30. were you were you back last year at all or was everything virtual I, last year? So they were. They went back in October. So oh, they went geez. the like we opened, which is funny too, because Ted Cruz had this tweet about how like um open up the schools or something and i was like your schools have been open the entire time so oh, he just hasn't been to texas for a long right. time yeah. been, so i was like cocoon the whole yeah, time he was like i like, <laughs> I like tweet out liberate the schools uh, i'm like you're in cancun while we're freezing to death in our homes oh my god but so we went we went uh back in october but like they were allowed to come back if they wanted to. But like, did you go back? I did not. I was on yeah. a medical accommodation. Good. AISD let me be on a medical accommodation until I got vaccinated. So, so I went back after the winter storm in February. So, and mm -hmm. this is an important part of the conversation that we'll be having about both your book mm -hmm. and about your teaching in Texas is that you have uh, cystic fibrosis, um, which means a couple of things. The most uh, important one as it relates to COVID is that it would literally kill you in like nine seconds to get COVID, <laughs> you know, right? You know, Todd, my doctor said, we had this conversation. I have a really cool doctor and he has kind of a tough love approach sometimes. And he was writing me my letter and he was like, well, you probably won't die. So it's up to you. If you want to go back, you can assess the risk. And I go, well, will I lose lung function? And he said, oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> and I'm like, well, no, I only it's pretty, have- Pretty bad. Yeah. I'm like, I only have 47% and like 35 is like transplant territory. Right? So I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to lose any more lung function. He's like, all right, let's write the letter. You should stay at home. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. So right now as a, as an adult, uh, human being you have 47 percent lung function you're living oh, yes. in a state where they where covid is being brewed like espresso <laughs> at starbucks yep. and um shared and, and shared at the same level exactly <laughs> so it's not just the kids obviously to be concerned about when you're at school and, and you don't know their vaccination status or whatever but just sort of living in texas is <laughs> like the threat level seems to be fairly high for you at this point y yes <laughs> oh, Todd, what is this interview you're doing? <laughs> well, I mean, her book's called Who's Going to Love the Dying Girl? I was going to say, it does, tie in, it does tie in very well with the nature of Bree's poetry, because there is always this sort of heightened awareness in all of your poems to, you know, the, the brevity of life. I mean, that's, right. that's kind of like the, the one of the most informing factors of reading your poems, and it, it makes for really intense highs uh and and then some really intense lows too right um, well and also the other thing that and we can discuss this both as it relates to your book and also your teaching is that i know that some of your students kn knew you when you were more precariously ill before this new medication came online at was it two years ago or three years ago whatever I um yeah i think like 
three, four. I don't remember, Todd. You probably um, But, you know, just this notion that you were teaching kids about literature and writing about, um, you know, life and death stuff in your poetry. But meanwhile, you're in a classroom and the kids are aware that, like, hey, our teacher might die. Um, there's got to be a lot of, there's a lot of weight to that, obviously, as a teacher and as an adult who's taking care of children and their emotional well-being in the classroom. So I'm sort of interested um, for us to talk about that as it relates to also the stuff that you chose to have us read and what you have your kids read, because the stuff that you have your kids read is really sort of powerful, <laughs> enervating shit, to be yeah. perfectly honest with you. Very intense. Yeah, super intense. Um, so let's talk about your book first, though, Bree. Let, let's dive into that. Okay. How does it feel, most importantly, to have your first book coming out literally right this very moment? I mean, it's good. It's a little weird that it's during a pandemic year, but I, it's great. I waited a really long time. It feels like forever. It's almost anticlimactic. I waited so long. I mean, I didn't wait. I say I waited like I was just sitting on it, like waiting for somebody. No one would publish me. Like, no one would take it. And so a lot of the poems in there are very old. And I actually feel a little weird about the title now because all of them were written pre-Trikafta. Mm -hmm. So like, talk a little bit about this medication and, and where, where you were when this medication showed up. So when the medication showed up, I was doing okay. I think the worst I had been doing, the worst I was health-wise, and that's when I wrote a lot of this, was <laughs> nine years ago when I started at the school I'm in now, I was starting the transplant process. I had 35% lung function. I think I weighed like 88 pounds. Um, like I was very, very ill. And that's probably, you know, the worst, that is the worst I ever was. But then I did a couple of things. I started going to a CF clinic because I was adult diagnosed, things were kind of weird. And I went to just a regular pulmonologist and I wasn't doing the full battery of treatments. Like I didn't really realize I had full on CF because they called it atypical. And it was just, you know, I mean, there have been like a lot of advances in cystic fibrosis and like, you know, genetic testing and all kinds of advancements that have kind of changed how the disease is treated. But they didn't used to need adult clinics because people would die, but they just started opening them because patients are living longer. So I started doing the treatments and I got better. And then I got Trikafta. Like I was doing okay, but I was not great. I still would go to the hospital like twice a year and get a pick line and have to do that whole rigmarole. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And I wasn't like, I was not feeling great. You know, like I worked and I was like, oh, life is hard. Um, and then I, and then I got the Trikafta and I don't feel like a lot of people who, who have CF who get Trikafta, it's like life altering. They can now climb mountains or running marathons or having the best time. If you read all those articles when it first came out, um, that hasn't happened for me, but that's because I think I had such, I mean, I know why I had such significant lung damage from being undiagnosed for years and years and years. So I have mm. something called bronchiectasis, which is why I'm only at 47. I don't think I'm ever getting any more lung function, but this is actually a-okay and I'm stable and I'm super grateful for that. Wow. So did, so 
did you have cystic fibrosis as a child, but your parents just thought yeah. you were sick all the time or something? No, it's genetic. So you always have it. Mm. Um, I had the genes and I wasn't sick. Like I had a perfectly normal uh, childhood. I mean, I got strep throat and stuff, but I was a pretty normal, healthy kid. I was not like asthmatic. I was not like, I mean, I was never what you would call a outdoor kid, a sporty kid. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was more of a cocaine and punk rock kid. <laughs> I was. But you're talking to a bunch of book a, nerds, so we all kind of yeah, yeah identify yeah. with that. I was more of a yeah, stay inside and read a book kid, but I was not sick. And then in my 20s, I lived in London, and I just started getting sick all the time. I started getting pneumonia over and over again. I smoked. Yikes. So I smoked from the, I don't know if I should talk about this. Sorry, students don't smoke. Um, <laughs> I smoked from the time I was 14 until I was 24. Yeah, and that's I, not, that's not yeah. good. Unless you're working no. in a coal mine in the 1830s. <laughs> no. So I quit smoking, but I just kept getting sick and they didn't know why. And I would go to the doctor and they would diagnose me with pneumonia and then I would get antibiotics and I would get better. And then it would happen again in six months. And this went on. I have a whole essay about it. You can read. This went on for about a decade. Wow. And then I became a teacher. In my first two years of teaching, I started to lose weight for no reason. And then I just got really, really sick. And then they finally did the genetic tests and found it. Wow. So how old yes. were you when you got the diagnosis? 30. 30. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, so at this point, you're already a writer, right? Um, yes. Or at least wanting to be a writer. Um, how did this diagnosis alter sort of what you wanted to write about and or did it change your focus? Like, was there an urgency to get published? Was there an urgency to, to do things? Did you think you were going to die in 10 years? I thought I was going to die in five years. Mm. I, I felt like I was going to die in five years. Uh, when you're down to 35, I mean, sorry, 35% lung function, it does not feel good. And I weighed 88 pounds and I yeah. didn't recognize myself. And I felt like I was going to drop dead at any moment. Um, I don't know if it, I, I just think that we write about the things that we worry about hmm. or like that are kind of present and I didn't start writing about being sick right away. I think after a couple of years, I just started. I started writing. Special guest star Vega. Oh. Vega has shown up. I feel like I just bummed her out. She's like, hold my hand. No, she's. Uh, listeners, I'm doing double mom duty while oh. taping a podcast, which is literally the number one stupidest thing you can do. Um, and Vega says she hurt her hand probably from the fan she was trying to lick earlier <laughs> <laughs> who's going to love the child without a tongue <laughs> it'll be tough her mother <laughs> <laughs> sorry breeze you, but that's you okay talking, so you're talking about so, what you write about yeah you just write about the things that you obsess about right mm -hmm. Isn't that so do you, you don't think that you don't think that your poetry changed um i, I mean yes it did well I used to write, no, not a, not a ton, somewhat. It, you know, I wrote, what did I write at Bennington? Like I wrote mostly about music 
stuff. Mm -hmm. And that was the thesis, but it was really about, those poems are really about me and like my, like, you know, kind of warped, I don't even know what they're about, my warped childhood, I don't know. I like, nothing has really changed, like warped relationships and dying. I don't know. (laughs) I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, you know, writing while sick you know, and getting up the focus and the energy. I mean, both physically sick and mentally wherever you were, you know, I feel like a lot of, a lot of us and our listeners struggled to write under the best of circumstances. So I just love to hear, oh man, how'd you pull that off? Like (laughs) if I was that sick, it would be all 90 day fiance all the time. (laughs) Um, Well, I do watch quite a bit of television (laughs) as you probably know but um I think I well one of the things that I did that was helpful is I joined a bunch of writing groups so I joined I got asked to join um a critique group that's been going in Austin for it's called Brass Tax I don't know how long they've been doing it before me like 20 30 years it's it's old wow And so they, um, this poet, David Meishen, who has a wonderful book out, who used to live here, but now he lives in New Mexico. He saw me read at a a reading in San Antonio that my friend Judy used to put on, but I actually didn't know her at the time. I read at that reading and I read some poems and he invited me to Brass Tacks. And so I was in a critique group. So you have to produce, you have to have something to critique. And these people were like UT professors and like published poet, people who had books. It was a very like high caliber level of people. And I was super intimidated and I was like, I got to like step it up and start writing some things. Um, And so that helped. And then I started a writing group with some fellow teachers where I kind of let it. I didn't want to lead it, but it just happened because I would do the prompt most of the time and we would just get together and um, write, like drink some wine. And, and we each took turns coming up with a reading and a prompt related to the reading. And we would just do these generative workshops. And most of the poems in that book came probably originated from those. I'm not a good person about putting my butt in the chair and writing if I don't have a reason or if I don't have like because when you're teaching a deadline (laughs) yeah like the last thing you want to do after teaching for like eight nine hours I mean I also work like 10 hour days so like I'm like at school a lot and I'm like I don't know I waste a lot of time I could probably be more efficient but I also am like really meticulous in planning lessons and like I get really into it I spend a lot of time with my students I do a lot of outside of school stuff so if I didn't like carve out the time to do it I wouldn't have done it and then the book itself, I finished, um, like I had a, a, a fellowship. I don't know. I had space in the writing room of Boston and I like worked on a first draft of it, like finishing it there. I just carved out time. Like I just basically put myself in structured situations yeah. to like do it where I had to perform. I didn't leave uh- it up to me. One of the things that I thought was most interesting about the book, and we're going to have you read a a, a poem in just a sec, though, um, is the integration of popular culture into your poems. There's there's oftentimes a thread of it sort of coming through, like you'll mention a song or a TV show 
or a song lyric will be a title even. Um, but also that you use popular culture as sort of a connection between the speaker in the poem and a character who might appear in the poem, um, whether they are real or not, I, I obviously don't know. Um, is that intentional or is that just sort of like you being alive in the world and this is what inspires you? I think it's, it's, I'd like to say it's intentional. I'm kind of like accidentally um, like deep sometimes or like whatever. <laughs> um, it's just the way my brain works, I think. Like I just, that's my way of like relating to a lot of people maybe, or like, I just think it's in there. I, I mean, I originally, when I was a child, I wanted to be a music journalist. So I'm really obsessed with music and it's just sort of in my brain. And I don't know, it just ends up in the poems. Do you, are I, think you it's, I think it's, I think it's awesome because it, it always connects me. Cause I feel like you and I have talked about music so much just mm -hmm. as friends and we found all these connective points and then to find them in your poems too. And it's always, it's like, oh, this is so brief. You know, like in the best possible way I'm like and there's and there's references that I don't get but I like look them up or I'm like oh because you know I know that that's just part of how you function in the world like you you definitely music is so important and lyrics are so important the same way like they've always been important to me but I feel like you have a much vaster knowledge than I do but we've definitely connected on it on a personal level so it's so cool to see that in the palms too mm -hmm. you know like it's such a it's it's like a really great reference point for me yeah it's your context yeah, mm -hmm. and I like even, I mean, it reminds me of sort of the classical poets, right? Who might have an epigram from some other like Greek or something that I, we've never read or have a reference inside a poem to some other poem, which is of course, you know, part of the, the tapestry of, this, of poetry is referencing other poems. Um, but that what you're doing is referencing a Band of Horses song or a Red House Painter mm -hmm. song which in fact has a, a a wider distribution to the knowledge of, of humans today than most poetry does. <laughs> yes, um, yes. I, I mean, it's sort of an it's an interesting thing. Even though both of the in both cases, those are bands that are not you know they're not U two or something. But if you know them, you know them. Um, I I just think that yeah, I think it I think it's really cool. I so, think one of the things that I also wanted to do though a lot is to write poems for people who don't necessarily like poems. Mm -hmm. Or like can't like you mentioned, you know, because what you described is I always found it, I don't know. I just think popular culture is just a way to like, you know, I don't know. I just when poetry is too much just about poetry or existing in that world, I just wanted to get it out of that world exclusively. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So will you read a poem from uh, your book? Is that something you will do for us? I will. I will do it. Okay. What uh, What are you going to read for us? I am going to read a poem with a long title <laughs> called <laughs> In the In the Waiting Room of the Dell Children's Hospital CF Clinic at Age 40. Good? Okay. Yep. The Disney princess pictures and Finding Nemo posters haphazardly tacked up at registration cubicles where nurses wearing cartoon scrubs remind you of the fact that you're supposed to be dead by now. Even your medicine reeks of childhood. Asian hamsters, imagine a tiny syringe extracting secretions from their genetically engineered ovaries. Remember that fragile hamster you owned for three days? It caught cold and died. So many dead hamsters, their tiny bodies cooling off 
water removed from flame. But that one death, you cried more than the others, not because you knew it best. You loved it best because it was the most beautiful. Is there some kind of strange beauty and slowly dying of a child's disease, but not knowing until decades later? You never got out of gym class or to make a wish to meet Damien Rice mm-hmm. or top the other girls' sob stories at Whitney's Shoemate sleepover when they kept playing Richard Marx's Hold On to the Nights and crying. How do we explain something that took us by surprise? Now, you can't remember if you had nothing to share because you're not really a joiner or because you walked in late and they were already crying. Oh, that's good stuff. Love it. That is good stuff. That is so good, Brie. I uh, am personally very happy that you're not dead. (laughs) (laughs) Glad Um, you clarified. (laughs) (laughs) So one last question for me about your book, and then we're going to talk a bit about um, going back to school. What does it feel like, or what do you anticipate it's going to feel like reading these poems and talking about this point in your life that was obviously, you know, not the best part of your life? Um, is it hard to go back and remember that time? Is it hard to go back and remember that fear and, and, and all of that? Or has the distance and your relative good health now um, made it feel like you were a different person then? Um, I think I have pretty like thick skin. Like I have always been kind of a, I mean, it's hard to think about, but you know, what's funny to me about the book is that, you know, people read it and they think it's really sad And like, you know, my boyfriend read it and he said he like cried and it like really was hard for him to read. And I was like, I think it's funny. Like, (laughs) like, I don't think, and I don't know if it's just my personality that I have just such a like gallows humor that I just like, it's hard to remember. I think that a lot of times, I don't know, it'll be interesting. There are parts of that book that are, that are painful to revisit, of course, Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, yeah, I feel like I finished it and it's done. And now it's like, this is the last step in closing that chapter, mm-hmm. like it being out there. And like, so it's not as like fresh to me as it was, but I mean, also I can look back and go, whoa, things are a lot better now. Like, I don't, I don't feel like that girl anymore. Right. right. I just want to say for the record, I think it's funny. and part of that is you're funny and I know you're like I can hear your voice ringing through and it is the darkest humor though you know and Mm -hmm. that's I I love the poem that's right after the one you read um criticizing the young adult novel turn movie that your story would be and how not enough people (laughs) shit themselves in it and how like the phlegm isn't gross enough and I'm like making it way more glib than you are so like I think people read this and they feel the horror but when you're in it when you're in some like long drawn out medical life there's funny stuff which you can only find at the bottom of the barrel mm-hmm. mm. yeah that's a great point and it, the you know just like in the poem you just read that that bit about that you never got to get out of gym class or how to make a wish to meet Damien Rice yeah, yeah. Damien Rice, you're out there. You're out there, Damien Rice. Like, what an Damien. oddly 
oddly specific desire for a make a wish like really i think you could just meet damien rice couldn't you no. you, don't need, you don't need to be <laughs> She's <dying>. tried yeah <laughs> but i also want to say like the ending of that poem uh this is so funny maybe it's a gendered thing like those nights when girls like sob about something deep together and it's just like a constant competition of like my parents fight and maybe they're gonna get divorced <laughs> and then someone else is like I thought about not eating lunch. Do I have an eating disorder? And it's just sobbing. <laughs> not wow. to make light of either of those things, but there right. is a mode. A competitive that... emotionalism. <laughs> and yeah, and it's also like That's a release. It's a huge yeah. release. I right, mean, this right, right. is extremely relatable to me. And personally, I live for that shit and nothing dramatic ever happened to me. So I would have been coming up with something. So yeah, maybe that's something that reads seriously to people who have never been through it. But if you have, it's like, oh yeah, of course. Didn't have anything at the time. And I yeah. just sat there like, uh, why are y'all crying? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really was late to the party. I was late. <laughs> <laughs> oh god that's funny but the, i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of funny stuff obviously in the book in sad stuff um and then just you know just nuggets of of you know amazing truth like when you write in one poem that you know dying makes you think of your own mortality it's like well that's a that is a <laughs> that is a true statement isn't it um or or that uh, there's a great poem maine montreal where you start out by that. saying we went to Montreal. Okay, oh, no. so it was Maine, but there was a cobblestone square. <laughs> uh, where immediately you, you know, you shift the perception of what the poem is going to be about um, just within a, a line or two. Um, so, who are some of your big influences? If if readers like you, who who else should they read after they read? Who is going to love the dying girl? Oh wow, it's a tough question. Um... Wow. I, in grad school, I read, I was really blown away by Kim Adonisio. Like, I love that, like, book a lot. Um, I'm trying to think of, of people who, like, write like I write, and I can't, I'm, like, drawing a blank. Um, I like Dorian Lux a lot. I don't yeah. know that it's similar, but I remember Ed turned me on to her back in the day lately I've been reading um you want to know what I've been like who I'm into lately like yeah Hanifa, what, what do you Hanifa like right Durkib, um Tommy Pico uh is one of my favorite I mean but it's not like similar to what I do um I really loved all of Tommy Pico's books although I think now they're like doing tv writing and <laughs> um that's where the real poetry is is cbs at that kava akbar like is phenomenal but i don't know um well you mentioned ed you mean ed ochester oh right? yes ed ochester, i mean he, he was he was a, he was a, a big teacher i think i could see some of the influences oh yeah yeah i mean like i love his work and like yes. i discovered him when i got to bennington and i mm -hmm. remember talking to you about how great of a teacher he was and then seeing him read at bennington and like immediately yeah. going out and buying all of his books um mm -hmm. ed yeah. um gave me the greatest compliment of my entire life mm -hmm. and he's like you know what i like about your poems brie there's no bullshit in them 
and I have like I think that's accurate. No, I think that that's true. And that's that's the thing that you feel about Ed's poems too. Yes, like there's this real no bullshit factor, Mm -hmm. and it's like I I you know I feel it in your poetry too. It's like let's stop trying to adorn this or complicate this. Right. Let's strip it away and let's just frankly talk to one another and like and you know that that immediacy is really felt and it's really beautiful. So early on when I first started like. I think it happened like I probably wrote more complicated before I went to grad school, but I think just the stress of like teaching full time, like I had just, I was just getting certified to be a teacher. I was like a first, second year high school teacher in a title one school, like a very different school from where I teach now. And I just, the stress of it just made me just write very straightforward. I was Mm -hmm. like, but I get to write the poem. And (laughs) I, I read a lot of Phil Levine and I just mm-hmm. really love the way that he wrote poems for people. Like, I felt like he wrote poems for my dad, who's like an industrial roofer, you know, like right, right, right. where he just said we, he meant, and mm-hmm. that's like been really important to me. So early on, I read like, came out and easy, like Phil Levine, um, those people like that, you know, even like Jack Gilbert, I think is. Very, I love Jack Gilbert. Jack Gilbert's, Jack Gilbert's a best. genius. Yeah, Jack Gilbert's a genius. I teach that married poem with the avocado plant, mm-hmm. and it slays my students. But like, just that kind of simple gut punch thing, like, makes me very happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's what I'm into. Well, um, I think Jericho people are gonna, Brown too. Jericho, Jericho Brown. Brown's a genius. Yeah. My, yeah. I've thought yeah, so much about him, Jericho yeah. Brown since we read his book. Mm-hmm. Just loved it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely loved it. Um, well, Brie, I think that uh, people are going to absolutely love Who's Thank Going you. to Love the Dying Girl, um, which is out now from Unsolicited Press. You can buy it on Amazon or any of those places or from unsolicitedpress.com, I suspect is their address. Yes. Um, so let's talk a little bit, though, about uh, the other side of your life, yeah. um, which is the teaching side. The teaching teaching. side. <laughs> So you're that you're the badass English teacher oh. who stands on the desk and says, "Oh, Captain, my Captain." <laughs> no, the kids stand on the desk. Yeah, I don't right. do that. Yeah, so on, you Ted. stand on a desk and you say, <laughs> "Would you like to buy my chapbook?" <laughs> no. <laughs> I'll be honest um, with you. I've told them not to buy it. I said it's should. not appropriate. Yeah, it's not appropriate. <laughs> so what so, grade are you, what grade are you teaching these days? I teach tenth grade English to academic and creative writing and they are juniors and seniors wow amazing i'm sure you're the cool teacher even if you try not to positive you're the cool teacher (laughs) i don't know man i think there are a lot of cool teachers nowadays yeah yeah what's Um, the what's the smoking in the teacher's lounge like these days though is is there still a lot (laughs) (laughs) we have so little space i don't even know if we have teacher lounge no we do we have a copy room no one hangs out in there it's a pandemic todd (laughs) you don't want to get a pandemic from the 95 year old algebra teacher like oh god mr swanson gave me the delta (laughs) (laughs) so these three these three selections that you had us read these are you are these you bring them to your creative writing students no no these are these are english too which is really yes oh yeah crazy yeah so oh my god i assume these are your creative writing students this is some deep shit brie i know i I love it 
Mr. Elf goes hard, as they like to say. No, I mean, they don't, they don't read them on their own. We unpack them as a class, but they are right. used to teach specific things, specifically. Okay. Devices. So let's start with, um, let's start with Girl by Jamaica Kincaid. Just taught that today. Okay, Fantastic. Perfect. Um, so listeners, if you've never read Girl by Jamaica Kincaid, we'll have a link up for you to find it. Um, it's also in every single anthology Everything. of creative writing that's been published in the last 40 years. Well, that's funny. I've never read it, actually. So. Really? Yeah, oh I, I've only read Autobiography of My Mother in, in college. Uh, I've never read any other Jamaica Kincaid, so this was cool to, to discover. Yeah, because I, I, like, I totally assumed this was all creative writing because, yeah. you know, there's, there's three very different styles and approaches. Um, and, you know, this was like one of those classic examples of like how, how what a short story could do, you know, right. mm -hmm. like and it's how only, to have a completely different voice than what's expected. Yeah, but only, what the hell English only, teachers did you guys have? This it's is only the 350 kind of stuff words, right? Oh, uh, we didn't read this kind of stuff when I was a kid. No what fucking way. Like, East of Eden. East of Eden. <laughs> Ivanhoe. <laughs> Prisoner of Zelda. <laughs> Oh, Nothing like this. I yeah, tried no, to bring Todd and I are old. I, yeah. I, aren't we older than both of you guys? I yes. think that's maybe what's no. going on. Uh, Ryder, you're not older than me. I'm not. All right. No. But I but am. But you're working you're with oldest. young people, so that's keeping you young. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> well, I, I try to bring them things that I enjoy, that they're going to like. Right. I'm not, I refuse to bore my students. And like, they don't always like this stuff, to be honest with you, but I am authentic in that I'm like I like this story I wouldn't teach you something I hated mm -hmm. like right. of Eden just right. kidding I, I, <laughs> wow good dark just path. kidding I have not read it so we just did an episode on it so I know it's on so our, it's on our should, should uh should one of us read girl the whole thing the whole the thing whole no thing. we should it's not read enough. the whole thing it's short enough to read no no, no. No. It's like it's like 500 words. Okay, I'll read the first few lines and I'm going to stop when I feel that the room has had enough. Okay. Okay. Wash the white clothes on Monday and put them on the stone heap. Wash the color clothes on Tuesday and put them on the clothesline to dry. Don't walk barehead in the hot sun. Cook pumpkin fritters in very hot, sweet oil. Soak your little cloths right after you take them off. When buying cotton to make yourself a nice blouse, be sure that it doesn't have gum in it because that way it won't hold up well after a wash. Soak salt fish overnight before you cook it. Is it true that you sing Benna in Sunday school? Always eat your food in such a way that it won't turn someone else's stomach. On Sundays, try to walk like a lady and not like the slut you are so bent on becoming. Don't sing Benna in Sunday school. I think that that's, that's a good right point. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as the as soon as the slut line starts peeking out, you're like, oh god, this is this is going to be about a lot more than uh, yeah. instructions <laughs> on how to wash the clothes. Like, yeah. and and that's the moment when I, as a reader, the first time I ever read this, was like, whoa, wait a minute, whoa, yeah. <laughs> where where are we? Wow, so, wh what do you pick this story for, Bree? Uh, point of view mm -hmm. and syntax. Mm. Yeah interesting okay jamaica kincaid has the best syntax ever i love all her stuff yeah so this story is one sentence that is one 500, long that is 500 words long split up by uh semicolons mm -hmm. um 
and it's an amazing piece of literature that literally is taught everywhere and has been in every single anthology. When your students read this, though, what is what's their experience from it? Do they do they get it? No, um, not the first time. So we do a process in my class called shared inquiry, where we read it through once and they just like mark for tiny little things they notice, like questions they have. And then they talk with their peers about what they notice, what they're picking up on. And then we kind of discuss whole class. And then we do a second read through where I make them highlight for on this particular piece, it would be point of view. And then I'll be like, like I don't do syntax with on level because that's what I teach. I don't teach pre-AP. Um, 10th graders too much, but I do say, what do you notice about the sentences? Mm-hmm. And then they figure out that it's one big long sentence when they look at it and we talk about it. And then I just sort of through the process of reading it and having a conversation about it, where I want them to end up is understanding why she wrote it in second person point of view and Mm -hmm. why it's one big long sentence where she repeats, this is how, this is how, this is how, and slut, slut, slut. And what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So that's, and sometimes even after the whole conversation, I'll get their like final short answer on it. It'll be like, the author wants us not to be sluts. And I'm like, no, no, no. no. (laughs) And then I, and then I have to go back and be like, guys, like every single kid who does that. And it's, I don't mean to be sexist, but it's always the boys. It's never a girl who says that Mm -hmm. my, my female students understand why Jamaica Kincaid made that choice. Mm -hmm. But then I just recorrect them and they get it. Today they, seem, today they seem to get it right off the bat though. It must just blow their mind to think the story can have a form like this too. You know, like, I mean, you're still mm-hmm. young enough to have like, think of short stories as like, once upon a time that this happened or whatever. And then to have it like completely be advice in these weird half cent. I mean, that just must be revolutionary. Mm. I don't know that they think that much or that deeply about it but yes writer (laughs) i mean it's interesting that the kids are or maybe it's just coincidence that they happen to be more interested or more connected to the message here um because i feel like this is a direct exercise in empathy you know Mm -hmm. like you are becoming the object of the story just by reading it And it says something about the time that we've just been through, the time that they've just been through, that they could like immediately access that sort of swap. It's Mm -hmm. funny that you should say empathy because literally, I swear to you, one of my like, like jockey boys said to me when I asked the question, why? And they're like, you know, his answer and I typed it in as we were discussing. He's like, you know, so you have like empathy and stuff. <laughs> and it was so like, and I You're am not I'm, wrong, Chad. And I'm like, I'm not making fun of him. My heart was warmed. I right. really yes, yes. wanted to hug the child. I was like, yes, you get it. Yes. Yeah. And I'll write that down in our notes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the the uh, the intellectual leap through second person is a hard one to make because you uh-huh. it is so direct, right? Mm-hmm. It is so much of uh, that if you're not um, 
if you're not attuned to it, you feel like it is in fact addressing you because you're reading you so often. Yes. Right. But what um, what Jamaica Kincaid does so well here is she sort of buries the you, right? So the you doesn't appear at the start of a sentence or the start of a fragment. Mm-hmm. It, it shows up at the end or it shows up buried inside of it so that it doesn't feel like it's a directive and therefore it's not as off-putting. So it's also sort of a masterclass in how to write second person without making it so much in your face, you mm-hmm. know? It Without makes it me mean, choose your own adventure. Yeah, yeah I was just going to say the exact same thing. That's exactly it. Although this is a much better choose your own adventure than I than many that I read. Would, would you uh, like to be a slut? Turn to page 16. You? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 16. 16, I'm there. What happens now? Oh, get bullied by a man. Boom, flip back, flip back. Flip back, flip back. Oh. Uh, shamed by everyone. Um, so, the, I mean, that's... I think as as a, a as a device to teach them creative writing, also it's really cool. But so, you, do you have like your this level English student do like um, interpretive writing where they read this and you say, "All right, write something that is in this style," or is that something you do with your creative writing kids? I do that with creative writing. If we have time, we have like creative writing days in English class. Like we did a, a lot more last year, and I I would like have them do something. I don't know that I've ever done it with this story. It's a great idea. If I have time, I will have them do it for sure. <laughs> By the way, side note, have you guys seen the McSweeney's um, parody of this where it's a teacher? It's called Teacher. No. no. It is so good and actually a little triggering for me. It's, really, <laughs> it's so spot on good, but McSweeney's oh, funny. and it's like, this is how you like, and it's about COVID and the pandemic right. and oh like, oh, wow. and how teachers have to be like everything. So it's really good. I, I just watched all of the chair in one night and talk about triggered. Good Lord. <laughs> I was the fucking pistol afterward. <laughs> <laughs> Oh Jesus God. Christ. Uh, okay. Um, which one do you want to look at next? Which, which one, what, what do you typically do before or after girl between new boy and... Um, I think we do... Costa Rica. We do Costa Rica, new yeah. boy next. All right. Let's take a look at new boy by and Roddy I, Doyle. I turned this for my students into reader's theater so we read it as a play but oh wow and oh, you that's guys, awesome and the version that you guys there's a lot of cuss words in this in this story i want you all to know that i censor it for my students oh, that's except yes. for the last one i leave maybe i shouldn't say this in public but i leave the last one mm. i had story. i had never read this before and i so good absolutely love it yeah, I, I had so never good. read it either. I had seen the short film, the Oscar-nominated short film, um, and it was so funny because to be reading it, I was like, I picked up within like a couple pages, like, oh, this is that, this is that short film, mm-hmm. and then I went back and watched it after reading the story, and uh, I like the film less because <laughs> because so much of uh, so many of the details are in this story. I mean, all the. Yeah. All this, I mean, the story is here. It's just, this is such a like tight, perfectly written. Uh, perfect. Yeah, it's yeah perfect. the tone. The tone is the tone. It's crazy because yes. it's the just ending, so factual, you know? I know yes. we're going to get there and we're probably not going to like go through the plot, but I was like, this is good. I like this. I like this. And then the ending, I was like, 
I love this. Yes. <laughs> I was so emotional in a way that like I really didn't see coming. I was like reading it going, well, I know where this is going because I'd seen the film and I'm like, yeah, da, da, da. but man, there's something about the details of them sharing a joke at the end mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and crying with laughter. I just, man, it killed me. It was really so, emotional. Ryder, it's interesting because I show the film to my students too. And mm-hmm. I last year I had them do a stage to like a page to screen like analysis yeah. comparison. But, and I find, I love the story. Yeah. It's beautiful and that and but I cried at the film and maybe it's because I had I had the story in my brain, but right. what killed me about the film that's not in the story because you don't get to see it, which I thought was it added. I like that they both exist, yeah. but the yeah, film, you get those flashbacks of his father yeah. being yeah. a teacher. It's and beautiful. that is what yeah. cu- like yeah. And the music is great. And then the, mm-hmm. the, the way that they, sh- the way uh, Steph Green is the director and the way she mm-hmm. shoots those flashbacks is just yeah. like, it has this like bright, nostalgic, like dusty mm. feeling. It's so, yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. Definitely. It was just funny to, to see that all the little gems from, yeah. the sh- from the short film were already in the short story, you know, as far as the detail yes. of the storytelling and the little looks between the characters, they're all explained. It's not like, you know, it's not like the film found those moments with the kid actors. They were all very scripted. And that script is completely taken from the story. Um, but I just love the neutral tone. Like, mm-hmm. I just love yeah. how it starts yeah. off so like basic and factual. And you're kind of like, kind of bored. You're kind of like, all right, Joseph in school, doing math. <laughs> and then it like just builds this emotional, like, oh God, uh, until, you know, by the end, there's like so much meaning yeah. in every interaction between the characters um i i i I just i'm blown away i've never read any roddy doyle so i i think they should teach this instead of hills like white elephants to to teach the subjective Mm. voice Mm -hmm. because Mm. i mean it has it has more relevance now for a kid to read this than hills like white elephants might but the use of the subjective voice in this is so powerful and then like just like writer said by the ending like i was overwhelmed with emotion by them sharing the joke and then him flashing back to his father and like oh my god it's just it's so artful and so um so easily done seemingly which means it must have taken roddy doyle like 30 years to write it (laughs) Mm -hmm. like what what he must have cut to make this what it is um i would i i have to go find like an interview where he talks about this because i i have to know so Mm -hmm. good do we do we want to tell people the plot of, of this story? Sure, I mean it's pretty simple. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a new boy in the classroom. Yeah. There's a new boy in the classroom. And yeah. he's an immigrant or a refugee. Uh he's he's moved to Ireland. He's definitely black. That's clear yeah, from he's, Go ahead, he's a, he's a refugee from Rwanda. From a Rwanda. lot of it's in it's from the the book the deportees i think is the title of it it's a collection of short stories but i mean i did a little research around it (laughs) he's from rwanda Mm -hmm. and he came over to flee the genocide in rwanda right i guess a lot of so a a lot of people or a chunk of uh refugees went to ireland oh that's weird Hmm. which is weird but that's what i found in my digging wow so he's this just tracks his like two hours 
max of him in his first day of school <coughs> and he, kids uh start bullying him and it's really about him reading the tone and understanding quickly the social dynamics of the classroom both with the teacher and with other kids but then throughout we're getting these flashes back to his father and his old classroom um and then uh do we want to give away the ending someone else go for it or should we just leave it it, it, well, we might Joseph, Joseph yeah. who's the main character, ends up getting into an altercation with, with the kid sitting behind him named Christian. And and what you think is about to be a fight isn't really a fight because Joseph just grabs the kid's finger and sort of bends it backwards. And like then they have another fight and he does the same thing. <laughs> Christian Kelly's not smart. Christian Kelly is not smart. Um, but then, so at the end of the story, the I mean, it sounds so simple. The three boys are being admonished by their teacher. And then there's another person involved, a little girl, um, who's also being admonished by the teacher. And the three boys are left alone and they share a joke. And all of a sudden, these three adversaries become friends. Yeah, they're, they're joined by... Getting, by, being in trouble together by being in trouble together. by being in trouble together it's such a crazy shift of perspective because you just you know throughout the story with the flashbacks to the the trauma that he's experienced back in rwanda and then these like little kid hijinks going on in the classroom you just hate the kids you're just like right. oh my god like I, you feel for this little boy he seems so much more mature he seems so much above all these stupid little kids and then at the end it's like oh no, like he, the stupid, they need each other. Right. <laughs> like the, yeah. the stupid kid hijinks are the thing that, that might save him, you know, right. that, that, mm -hmm. that will actually glue this community together. And that is just such a cool turn to go from hating this bully so much as a reader and being like, you little shit, you have no idea what this kid's been through. And then at the end being like, no, you're just, this is exactly what he needs is to be, right. just be a normal kid and be around other children and, and be, a, be a part of a team in some capacity, you know? Oh, beautiful. Yeah, and it, it turns out, of course, that Joseph has seen his father's dead body. His father has been murdered um, it, during the genocide in Rwanda. Um, so he's all this stuff is happening, and Joseph, who is, in effect, the main character, um, is having memories at the same time, just like anyone does. And so everything seems to now have the weight of a, a different significance because of what's in his head while this benign sort of banal childhood shits happening around him he has in fact lived a more interesting and profound life than what these kids are living but at the end he still just wants to be a kid it's i mean yeah. it's very powerful still necessary yeah. yeah very powerful so okay so when you're teaching this story to your high school kids who are not that far uh in age from these kids what what are they picking up well at first they just enjoy how bad the kids are they're like because <laughs> yeah. the kids are like nine and they're right. like these kids are terrible <laughs> um and they enjoy that and then i think they they get it if we um we unpack it together one of the things i have them look for is how the sentences get longer like when it first starts out and like his and we talk about the perspective and like why it's written the way it's written and how it, it puts you in the mind of Joseph. And it's like, 
I am late. He is late. He is very late. And it's kind of mimicking the way somebody who doesn't, I mean, he, he speaks English, but like what they speak in this like not great town in Ireland. This isn't Dublin. This isn't a right. cosmopolitan right. Mm -hmm. um, place. They're dairy girls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is like, it's not the same language. And he's sort of puzzling through the customs and how that mimics like his thoughts. Mm -hmm. So that's what we talk about. And how the sentences are choppy at first. And then if you notice, they'll get longer and like more complex building up to that ending where he's finally like, getting more and more comfortable mm -hmm. or like processing more and we just talk about the perspective and stuff like that mm -hmm. it takes them a while to get there but we get there <laughs> we're like why is it written like this like the part yeah. about like he will kill me he means right. where he's like trying to figure out like your debt what your dad means or right you know right and, and then we talk about the bond but you know it's funny because <clears throat> like writer's reaction like these kids are terrible my kids beg to be christian kelly in the reader's theater they're right. like i want to be the best oh, yeah. but also yeah. they don't even have to puzzle like as an adult i think we read it we're like oh why does he want to be friends with these kids at the end and the kids are like well obviously you're not gonna rat him out like you're not gonna like right. it's immediate to them Right. Mm -hmm. they right. know why he's not going to say anything why he's right. not like tattling or whatever hmm. one and thing that ahead, I Julia. one thing I find beautiful about the ending is that the teacher's on board with it mm -hmm. you know what is she's she kind of aware yeah she's yeah. yeah three musketeers or yeah. whatever yeah. um and I just I just love that like everyone knows this is the best possible resolution um, mm -hmm. to this conflict. Yeah. Yeah. What were you going to say, Todd? Um, well, two things, which is um, the, the, the way that Joseph does modeling behavior to get in good with these kids when he realizes that the temperature in the room has changed. And also with the teacher, she also does modeling behavior. She sees these kids and there's that line. Uh, she does not seem angry. She looks at Joseph for some long time. So it's like the teacher's looking at them and doing the math and mm -hmm. coming out with the end of the equation where she's like, all right, I, I now have three bad kids. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's the other thing too. Like, you know, from that ending that Joseph is no longer going to be hanging out with Hazel or like right. the nice kids. Like he is, he is part of the pack now. Right, mm -hmm. <laughs> right. It, so the, the modeling behavior, um, you know, it's it's right there on page 84 for the handout that we have. He laughs because the other boys are laughing. He hears them snort. He also snorts. You're like, man, this is a guy who just does not want to stand out. I am going exactly. to be you. Um, yeah. And uh, it reminds me of a great book of the Rwandan genocide that I read once called Say You're One of Them by U.M. <laughs> Akpan, um, which is, you know, basically like do whatever you got to do to not get murdered you know mm -hmm. um and so here he is doing whatever he can not to be murdered um in ireland <laughs> so it's so good it's so good okay um and then our last one is another thing i'd never read before i don't know where yeah, you found this. this oh boy it was a lot of digging today 
Today is Costa Rica by Asaf Gavron. I've never heard of this dude, though he mm-hmm. looks like my cousin Danny. Well, he's an um, Israeli writer, so this is actually translated by it is Jessica translated. Cullen. Yeah, mm-hmm. from the Hebrew. Uh, but yeah, I've never heard of this author or this story. I did a lot of digging. I used to frame my units by area of the world. And I needed something and I came across it in planning the lesson and I just really loved the story. So Mm -hmm. I've taught it for like decades now. Wow. Yeah. It's a, it's again, a very short story. So all three of these pieces, and again, uh, listeners, we'll, we'll put these up on our Twitter and our Facebook and stuff. Um, A very, very short story. This is no longer than 1500 words. Um, And Again, a very subjective voice, super subtextual, and hits you in the chest like a ton of fucking bricks. Mm -hmm. Just absolutely loved it and was super jealous that I hadn't written it. Um, (laughs) So tell us about this piece, uh, Brie. So it's a short story where there's a main character who lives in Jerusalem, and it's his job to hang flags when countries visit Jerusalem to like welcome them, I guess. And he gets up on a crane in Jerusalem (laughs) and hangs flags for a living. And that's basically the entire plot of the story, Mm -hmm. Um, except that he, there's, well, I I use the story to teach symbolism and motif. Mm -hmm. And there's some stuff that repeats. Um, He imagines disasters and some other stuff, but What I like about this story is that there's a whole subtext about that's never mentioned in the story. But if you understand the situation in Jerusalem and what is happening, then you understand the story better a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I have to preface the story when I teach it with, and it's very hard to find objective Israeli-Palestinian conflict information. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But I have found a geography teacher somewhere has like a YouTube video that breaks it down pretty, pretty objectively. And we do that. And they know a little bit about it from world history. By the way, in Texas, 10th grade is world literature, which is Hmm. why I'm teaching stories. That's why I'm not teaching Americans. So that's why I find these stories from all over the world and we have a map in my classroom and we put a little pin when we travel to the place like okay we're gonna go to jerusalem today oh how cool cool yeah god i wish i had had you as my english teacher instead of mrs brant (laughs) (laughs) poor mrs brant i'm sure she tried her best she did and and she ended up creating an angry crime novelist in her wake um (laughs) i'm sure i'll create a few yes so the story also, just like the others, um, you know, it, much of the weight of it is brought to bear by the reader themselves. Yes. And so you got to really be paying attention when you're reading this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I suppose that's part of why you've chosen these things is that you want your kids to be interested, subtextual readers. Mm-hmm. How, how quickly do they pick up on it? How much prodding do you need to give them? Oh, a ton. This one's one of the toughest ones that I teach. Yeah, It's a lot of like, we work through it. Um, in fact, this one, when I assign it, I give them all a paragraph and I go, you find the, the figurative, like the stuff in the paragraph, like you find the figurative language. And then I just keep saying, over and over again, like, what is he imagining? Why do you think he's imagining that? What about his, you know, 
it's a lot of prodding. Mm-hmm. But we mm-hmm. get there and they love the ending <laughs> because there's a bad word in it and it involves food. <laughs> so right. they're there for the ending. But honestly, they like get it. Like they kind of get it. Like last year remotely, they did not get it as well because it was harder to do. But in an in-person classroom, they get it. I always have like one brilliant kid that's like, oh, I know. And so, but yeah, it's a lot. We do. I actually have had colleagues that didn't understand it and wouldn't teach it. (laughs) Well, I mean, I can't even explain it. It requires a lot. I mean, so here's the interesting thing is like two of the three stories that you've chosen for us to read and for your students to read, when you think about them, so this and girl, when you think about them, like if you just change the spacing, both of these could be really great poems. Uh, and that may um, be why I picked them. Yeah, but also both of them sort of do the same thing that a lot of your own work does, which is it it asks the reader to look beyond what exists on the page and find something larger than what's been given to you. You know, and that's for you. Sometimes that's the pop culture stuff. For this, in this story specifically, it is um, the socio-economic and geopolitical status of Israel, Palestine, and the entire world. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a lot, I mean, it's, it's also poetic in the sense that it doesn't rely on like uh, suspense, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a little bit of suspense in this story and that he keeps imagining yeah. a death or a car crash, which you're kind of like, what is all that about? Uh, but for the most part, like nothing really happens bad. Nothing you know, it happens. Just, it just just hangs flags and goes home and reads about the different countries of the flags he's hanging and then dreams about them. Um, but there's so much going on in just that that idea, right? It's more of a sort of conceptual conflict that you're that you have to sort of wrap your head around. Is like right, all these different countries have their own histories and their own populations, and and he's trying to like he doesn't even know half of them or more than half of them, but he's still trying to like wrestle with what it means to hang a flag. Uh, super mm-hmm. interesting. I would have loved this story in college. This is like mm-hmm. exactly my favorite type of story in college. I love stories about maps and signs and mm-hmm. flags, like anything that was like, you know, like nothing symbol happens. Symbol. But yeah, yeah. just <laughs> lots of like, I could write like a 20 page essay about this story and just really dive deep. You know, I love that stuff. I feel like it's, it's, it's one that you can really mine. Mm-hmm. And his his constant sort of imagining of doom, I yeah. just absolutely love because it's it's essentially this guy who is constantly experiencing the call of the void, you know, like mm-hmm. oh I could drive my car into this thing, mm-hmm. or a car could drive itself into me. I wonder what it'd be like if this bus hit me, and it's like how like how much can you fantasize and imagine these things without one day saying like. Maybe I will step in front of that bus. (laughs) Well, I think part of the reason why he imagines doom is that, like, think about what he does and where. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and that's what I asked the kids. I'm like, think about it. And they're like, oh. And then they like get it. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't in that entire story, I don't think there's one word wasted. Like it all, and I was just listening to it before. I was like, oh, I should probably review these stories. And I was just listening to uh, the recording I did of it for my students, like as I was like doing things on the way home from work. And I, I just, I'd forgotten like that, that was how it is. Like literally everything in Mm -hmm. there, like has a purpose. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's a it's a great story for that stuff. So I'm wondering when you're picking these stories and um, in present day, like we mm -hmm. hear all these horror stories about kids and their parents and particularly kids and their parents in Texas. Mm -hmm. um, like, is that perception of like, oh God, someone's gonna come in and, and give me shit for having them read a girl that, a, a story that has the word slot in it or is someone going to give me shit for reading a story where we talk about genocide? Or about Israel? Like, is that a is that perception reality in your life? I think it is in more of the advanced classes. Um, to be honest with you, the word I would argue, I mean, I don't think I'm going to get a lot of flack. I teach mostly, I don't teach anything with anything remotely sexual in it ever. I, mm -hmm. I X out all of the cuss words. Like, New Boy is actually pretty bad. Like I had to blot yeah. out like a lot of cuss words, but they don't even see it now because it's in reader's theater and I just took them all out. Mm -hmm. So they don't even know how bad the story actually is. But um, yeah, I mean, it's something you have to think about. I know that some of my colleagues, um, they teach like Purple Hibiscus uh, and The Kite Runner and Joy Luck Club. And um, I think that's it, but they get, they, they have a couple parents every year whose student needs like an alternative text. Um, mm -hmm. I think in, you know, I haven't ever had a parent complain um, because I usually make sure I censor them pretty good. I don't know if the parents would, we read A Long Way Gone by Ishmael Bea mm -hmm. in the spring and I've never had a parent say that. I do preface it. I do tell the parents we read it. And then I do preface it in class, like, because it's really hard. I don't know if you've read it. It's it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's a tough memoir to read. It's very sad. It's very graphic in places, but it's not. He doesn't dwell in it too long. But I tell them if you need to step out of the room, you can take a break. And I've never had a kid tell me that. Like, mm -hmm. I need a break. I had one kid tell me that after the fact, and I was like, you should have just asked to leave, skip these chapters. But you know, I don't know if like my students are academic and I don't know if they're necessarily going home and being like, hey, mom, I read the story. About mm -hmm. it. You know? <laughs> and that's kind of the beauty of it. And I'm like, I'm not trying to get anything over on the parents, but right. I list the titles and I'm like, if you have any objections, let me know. And it's never happened. But there are, yes, in Texas, like there are people, you know, um, that are taking issue with you know, my colleagues teaching other books. Mm. And it's never like any issue with like All Quiet on the Western Front, which has, you know, prostitutes. Murder upon it. murder and murder. murder yeah. and and lots of death. Dead bodies. And, of death. <laughs> and nobody complains about that, but they will complain about like the Joy Luck Club or mm -hmm. Purple Hibiscus or, you know, that kind of thing, which is interesting to me. And I'm like, hmm. Yeah. okay yeah what is your actual issue but i don't I, mean, I, I can tell you if you like <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that is yes it is it is you know for me um it's one of the reasons why when i pick things for class i've dropped things from creative writing mm. because i'm like i don't know we teach some todd goldberg um yeah that's you want to keep that out of the young kids minds we i actually use when we do second person i teach this is what you left behind mm -hmm. and i teach oh. that story 
Um, but I, you know, I censor things in creative writing as much as I can, but I don't pick anything. I never, well, I just don't want to sit awkwardly in a room and read about sex with my students. So, right. <laughs> right. So yeah. like I so, have colleagues that teach Gilgamesh and I'm like, this is like ancient, like erotica. I'm not, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uncomfortable. I'm like, I know it's like classic. It's the original tale. It's like, right. that, you know, but I'm like, nah, but so, I mean, we teach, I mean, it's, it's classic. Yeah. Right. So Brie, besides, I mean, you've been teaching for a decade now or over a decade, 15 right? 15 years. 15 years. Wow. Yeah. So besides like the obvious, and maybe this is the, the biggest, but besides like technological differences, you know, kids always on their phones or having access to the internet. What are, are there any other like trends like in terms of like the way the discussion goes or the way the students like feel or, or think about literature? Is there, has there been any trends or any differences or has it kind of maintained the same since you started I mean I think kids are kids and kids have yeah. been the same forever um yeah. I've never taught like advanced English in 15 years of being a teacher mm-hmm. I've never taught like AP or pre-AP it's just not my wheelhouse those aren't my people no offense they're great I was one but they're not my like teaching I have them in creative writing my creative mm-hmm. writing students are literal geniuses like some of them write better than me like they're so talented um but like you know I think kids like I don't know I taught in a title one school like 15 years ago to students whose first language was not English so what they reacted to and what they liked was very different than my students now for example for some reason when I taught out out there and I taught Antigone they loved it they thought Antigone was great. They loved mm. doing Antigone. And then at my new school, they hate it. Although last year they loved it because we acted it out on Zoom. If you want to see me performing Antigone really badly. I do. I do. <laughs> me and my <laughs> colleagues like literally got on Zoom and acted out the play. Amazing. Because so we cool. couldn't, we couldn't read it aloud on Zoom. So we had to do some weird things. But you know, I do think now maybe they like it a little bit more because of the political climate. It's like, oh, this sounds like something that we just lived through. Mm-hmm. But right, I mean, right. other than that, like kids don't like to read. <laughs> That's been constant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, it's so funny but, that except for the four of us when we were kids. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. You know, my students, some do like to read. They do. I have students who love to read, but the majority of my students in my academic classes do not enjoy reading. Yeah. But I think oh. meeting them where they are and admitting that is obviously mm-hmm. why you're connecting with them and choosing pieces that are both up to your literary standards and yes. something that can connect with them and short enough to get short through enough. during yeah. a thing, yeah. period. Yeah. One class yeah, period. Yes. That is a trifecta that is really admirable. It's and super difficult. Yeah. yeah. It is difficult. Finding, finding good short pieces like that, you know, for me as as a young person who at first had trouble reading because I was so mm-hmm. profoundly dyslexic, a short piece like that that moves me makes me want to go find more stuff that moves me, mm-hmm. you know? So it's really smart to pick something that a kid can read in 30 minutes and have such a profound effect. I mean, your students are going to remember New Boy for the rest of their lives, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, like, that's going to yeah. stick with them. 
Yeah. Which is cool, you know? I hope. They love A Long Way Gone, I will say that. Mm-hmm. When we read A Long Way Gone, they I had one kid whose parent told me he got his first job and he started donating to UNICEF. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, they, they love that book. Mm. So, And that's why I keep teaching it because they like it. And that's yeah, what nice. I do. It's hard. I mean, I also teach mostly boys. I don't mm-hmm. know why that. Well, I kind of, I have theories, right? Like uh, the girls are all in pre-AP, you know, because they've been kind of tracked that mm-hmm. way. Right. And mm-hmm. so I teach classes that have about, 20 boys and like 10 girls or five Mm -hmm. girls i have some periods where it's worse i've had years where i've had a class of 27 boys and three girls i mean it's so it's so crazy because like the the mfa program that i direct there's a hundred students in the program and it is 70 30 female to male you know it is the the numbers are completely flipped when you get into the real world Mm -hmm. (laughs) that is Mm -hmm. so interesting I mean, it was the same when we were in school too. Like the the male population was was very light on the ground when we were in grad school. There's not a yeah. ton of, you know, I think dudes just have a hard hard time saying, I need help, please teach me. Like <laughs> men are morons. No, we've no. talked about this before though. I mean, men also just don't read that much, you know? Right. Like, right. I, I like I have so many guy friends, very smart people, very engaged with the world. They don't read, especially not fiction and poetry. If they right. read anything, it's like, you know, civil war history. This is all so yeah. Tell me more about Churchill. Exactly. Well, this is this is socialized from birth. I mean, there are some yeah incredible Mm -hmm. child development studies about what toys a parent physically puts in front of their there's a study where they would I think they changed the clothes of the baby playing in a room and then sent in like a babysitter and was like just play with them and if they were dressed like a boy would hand them different toys than if they were dressed like a girl and that's like you know, girls are pushed to narrative, you know, and boys are pushed to systems and mechanical stuff. And this is all extreme generalization. And we all know it, but like how many generations will it take to undo it? You know, quite a lot, quite a few. I mean, and you can say they're like, you know, generalizations or whatever, but like, I literally see it in the flesh every day in my classroom. Mm. Yeah. Also, when you look at my school, which is, it's mostly a white school, but it's like getting more and more diverse. If you look at the the racial breakdown in like the high level classes compared to like the lower level classes, it's a totally different school. It's like teaching in a different school. Wow. Like that stuff is ingrained. And, and we are actively at my school trying to change that to try to figure out how, but I don't know how many generations it's going to take wow. or what you can do. It's something that we are working on, but like you can see it. Like right. if you go into an American high school and look around, I guarantee you, you will see it. Is, is Austin a particularly diverse city? I mean, I've only been there once no. and that was to see you. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's not, okay. I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't know what the breakdown is, but I know that when my friends from Boston visit, they comment on how not diverse it is. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's so strange because, you know, where I live in Palm Springs, it's, it's, primarily latino um, I, you know i think it's like 60 percent, something like that that's what austin is is primarily like latinx or like you know mm. like my old school was was all like it was like 65 percent mexican and i say mexican because it wasn't yeah. 
it was Mexican right. they, and about 35% African-American and like 2% white. Right. Um, the school I'm at now is, I think white is still in the majority, but there's a, a bigger chunk of. Mm. That's so interesting. That's but it's so interesting. not like we actually are getting, you know, more of other races in Austin, but it's not like it's still you know, Texas. Like it's still te- <laughs> it's still Texas. We we've been talking for a long, oh, I'm yeah. long time. It's just great. So, no, it's been awesome. Thank you so much, awesome. Bree. Thank you, Ryder. It's so good to see on. you. Yeah, so great to see you. Thanks for picking awesome stories. Yes, and, thank um, you. I can't wait till the you know the world comes back to normal. We can actually see yeah. each other yeah. in person. <laughs> Yeah. And and so listeners, go out and get Who's Going to Love the Dying Girl from Brie Rolf. Bye. It is available right this very moment from fine booksellers everywhere. Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>